welcome to the podcast of the Believer's Bible Class, a part of the historic First Baptist Church located in downtown Dallas, Texas. Each week we share the Bible lesson from our longtime teacher, Doug Brady. Doug has studied the biblical scriptures throughout his life and is knowledgeable in both ancient Greek and Hebrew, which makes his explanations of scripture all the more interesting and most certainly all the more accurate. Professionally, Doug is an attorney, although he considers his Bible teaching as his godly profession. As we continue our study into the problem of apostasy and in the church, we have this second lesson of this series, presented as a part of the study of the book of 2 Timothy. In this lesson, we learn more about the problem of apostasy, what it is and how it can be wiped out. Due to a problem with recording during the regular meeting of the Believer's Bible class, Doug has recorded the information from this lesson so that you can share with the understanding of this portion of the lessons. The Believer's Bible class is part of the historic First Baptist Church located in downtown Dallas, Texas. Each week, over 150 people meet together in our classroom, Lavorne Hall, on the lower level of the new Worship Center building. We meet at 9.15 a.m. following a short time of fellowship, and we welcome all visitors who are wanting to study the Bible. We will welcome you as you come to our class. Here now is our longtime teacher, Doug Brady. This is our second lesson in the coming apostasy. Our first lesson was last week. Today we're going to seek to get a deeper understanding in regards to the church and how it founds itself in the midst of an apostasy. This apostasy takes place in two parts. The first part is there will begin with the departure by the church or important members of your church from one or more of the key doctrines of Christianity with a concomitant position that the new doctrines or the new truths that they adopt in their place are the real biblical values or doctrinal realities. But as time goes on, we'll come to our second understanding of apostasy, and that involves a complete renunciation of the Christian faith and message which results from a full desertion from Jesus Christ's divinity and many times even his existence. But before we get into continuing our consideration of the characteristics of apostasy, I I want to pray. Dear Father, I pray that you will guide this study, that you will help us to understand what is coming and for a good part is already here. Help us to realize where Satan is trying to take the church and how he's trying to destroy it. Help us to remember his subtlety and his guile and his underhandedness. And so, Father, this morning we want to commit this time to you. We want you to guide and direct this study. I want you to use your words in my and not mine. Help me to say the things that you want said and not to say the things you don't want said. 
But have your Holy Spirit teach us this morning and open our hearts and bring recollection of what you want for us in the weeks to come. I pray these things in the name of your Son, Jesus, and through the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, last week, we looked at two characteristics of apostasy. One, that the apostate movement will seek to invade the church subtly and over time. You see, sin is patient, and Satan is patient And he will work to undo the church with great guile and perfect timing. The second characteristic we looked at last week was that the apostate movement will exude ungodliness. Now, to most of us, ungodliness seems like it's just a, a general sin that is taking over, but that's not really what this word means. It means a lack of reverence towards God. The people who show a lack of reverence, if they were ever in his presence, would change their tune. But they think because they can't physically see him or touch him or hear him, that he doesn't really exist, or he's so far away, he's never going to do anything in response to what they do. But they're sorely mistaken. But the third characteristic, which we're going to start with today, is that apostates will major in licentiousness. How do we know that? Well, in Jude 1.4, it says, For certain persons have crept in unnoticed, those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who will turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Now, this Greek word licentiousness is the word eselegia. And eselegia means unbridled lust, licentiousness, lasciviousness, wantonness, excess. This is what we will see eventually in the lives of those who are part of this apostate movement. Sin will be evidence of who is controlling and motivating them and the apostasy that they bring with them to the church, they will be licentious. The fourth characteristic we want to look at is that those who are part of the apostate movement will deny that Jesus Christ was the Messiah, deny that he's a savior, deny especially that he was creator, and even that he is the God of heaven. How do we know that? Well, let's look at Jude 1.4 again. Look at the last part of it. It says, For certain persons have crept in and they will deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. What does this word deny mean? It means to deny, to abnegate, to abjure, not to accept or reject. Now, they may say he doesn't exist, but that's not really the case. They know he exists. In Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 24, makes it quite clear that these people, they know that there's a God there, but they have made a decision. It's a conscious decision. It's not a decision that's intellectually based, or is it really a decision that is emotionally based? 
It is a decision that is volitionally based. In other words, if they acknowledged God, they would therefore, as a result, owe him an obligation because he created them. And they don't want to be beholding to anyone. They want to live their lives as they want to, doing whatever they want to, and do not have to listen to someone who's the master over them. They believe they're the master of themselves, but they are mistaken because sin is their master, and the father of sin is the one who will be running their lives. They don't recognize it. The fifth characteristic of apostasy that we find in the New Testament is that apostasy will sooner or later attack every doctrine of the faith. It may change the order of doctrines from church to church, but it will eventually attack every doctrine of the faith. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1, it says, but the Spirit explicitly says, now explicitly makes, saying, he is making this clear and unequivocal, so nobody can say there's any ambiguous meaning going on here. The Spirit explicitly says that in latter times, some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to the deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. What does it mean, deceitful spirits? Well, who is the father of lies? Satan. And his demonic forces that follow him, which was about a third of the angels from heaven, they are all there to deceive us. I mean, when Satan started in this world, what was the first thing he did? He deceived Eve. And he's been deceiving people ever since, lying to them, conning them, uh, using them, manipulating them. And that's what he intends to do. Now, in addition to that, you will see that he has demonic doctrines. It's easy to tell what a demonic doctrine is. It's when it's the opposite of uh, the doctrine from God's Word. And it will come. Let me give you a simple example. God's Word says that pastors should be male. The doctrine of demon will say, no, pastor can be male, pastor can be female, or something in between. The second thing I want you to see is that they will fall away from the faith. This word fall away means to lead away or depart from. It is the verb form of the Greek word apostasia. And then it says the falling or departing is from the faith. Now, whenever in the New Testament you see the word faith, pistuo, preceded by the definite article, that would be the so the faith means the body of truth found in God's word. That's what that term, the faith, means. And that's what they're going to be falling away from, God's truth that he has given us. Now, the sixth characteristic we want to look at is that apostasy comes from within the church. Some of you say, no, it's coming from outside. These things that are being described sound like the world and what they like to do. But that's not the case. It may be members of the world have crept into the church, but apostasy comes from within the church. How do I know that? Well, in Acts 20, starting in verse 29, Paul says this, I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Where will they come from? 
And from among you, your own selves, men will arise, speaking perverse things, to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be on the alert, remembering that night and day for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one with tears. Paul had warned the members of the church of Ephesus, who he's talking to here, elders of the church of Ephesus and their leaders, this is coming from within the church. And you have to be alert and recognize that it could happen. Notice again in Jude 1.4 that we have read several times. It says again, for certain persons have crept in unnoticed. Crept in where? To the church. And those who were long before and marked out this condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of God into licentiousness and deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Apostasy comes from within the church sometimes from places we do not expect it to come from, but it will. In addition to apostasy coming in the church, another characteristic that is important to see is that apostasy can strike with great alacrity. That is to move very quickly. One of the first churches that Paul helped to plant was in the town or the city of Galatia. And actually the first book or epistle that Paul wrote, was to the Galatian church. And when he wrote this, here's what he said, I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel. In other words, you're deserting the gospel that Paul preached to them and following after a different gospel. Now, let me tell you, from the time Paul was there to the time he wrote this letter was somewhere between six and 18 months. And he's saying, you're already falling to this apostasy. Another example of how Satan can move quickly, and this is found in the Old Testament. It was one of the first and maybe the, the second great example of apostasy in the New Testament. It's found in Exodus 32, 7 and 8. And something's going on down in the camp of Israel as it surrounds Mount Sinai while Moses is up on the mountain talking to God. And in verse 7, it says, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, Go down at once, for your people whom you brought up from Egypt have corrupted themselves. I want you to notice how God is talking here. First of all, he's saying, Get yourself down there quickly. The second thing he's saying, he just says, Your people. Not his people, Moses' people, whom you brought up from the land of Egypt. Who brought them up according to what God was saying here? Moses did. And they have corrupted themselves. How have they corrupted themselves? They violated God's commandments. They have quickly turned aside from the way which I commanded them. They have made for themselves a molten calf, and they have worshipped it and have sacrificed to it and said, This is your God, O Israel who brought you up from the land of Egypt. How long had Moses been up on the mountain? Forty days. The nation of Israel had become apostate in just the short period of 40 days. The book of Revelation, chapter 2, verse 4, there's a statement made to one of the churches where Jesus says, but I have this against you. You have lost your first love. Turned away from what I taught you. Let's look at... And another important characteristic. Apostasy is the work of the arch-deceiver Satan. Arch-deceiver Satan. 
This is what he is doing. You see, he's not after the world. They already belong to him. He can't do anything about Christ who is in heaven. And so he attacks Jesus's bride and he's trying to destroy her. Notice in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3, what it says, But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. And again, we'll look at 1 Timothy 4.1. The Spirit explicitly says that in latter times, some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to the deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. Even look at this and what Jesus attributes the statement to, or to whom Jesus attributes the statement that has been made. It's found in Matthew 6.23. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. Now, is Peter not one of the leading believers at this point in history? Of course he is. And he would say he wants what's in God's best interest. But he had let Satan deceive him. And he tried to tell Jesus he didn't need to go to the cross. And when he did that, Jesus told him, you need to recognize who's using you here, Satan. Now, if this hadn't been clear up to now, the next characteristic is that apostasy is designed to destroy the church. In 1 Timothy 1, 18 and 19, it says this, This command I entrust to you, Timothy, my son, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you fight the good fight, keeping faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in their faith. Now I want you to think back for just a second. There's probably no one here who saw the ship named Titanic in real life, but we've many of us probably seen the movie or seen documentaries, even seen pictures of what's left of the Titanic at the bottom of the North Atlantic. Think for a moment as that ship went down of the loss of life and destruction of property. Apostasy here in 1 Timothy 1 is likened to a shipwreck in our Lord's perspective. Can you imagine that that would be the spiritual result of the church and churches in our nation? And there are many churches in our nation that have already been shipwrecked by this movement of apostasy. And more and more is going to happen. And if you are a strong church, if you are a godly church, you need to recognize that you have a target painted on your back and Satan is going to want to destroy you. Look at something else of this apostasy in the church is likened to. We look back to 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 17, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them is Hymenaeus, and Philetus, men who have gone astray from the truth, that is the gospel of the Lord, saying that the resurrection has already taken place and they upset the faith of some. Now notice, this apostasy is spreading like what? Gangrene. It spread, the spread of gangrene in a human body is quick and unrelenting. It will many times have to be stopped by amputation. That's what's going on here, and we need to understand that. There's a final characteristic, though, I want you to see. Apostasy destroys ministry. Church is here for three purposes. 
Number one, to give glory to God. Number two, to build up and to edify the members of the church. And number three, to fulfill the Great Commission to spiritually reproduce. First two are all are both designed to compel and to strengthen the third, that is fulfilling the Great Commission. How is that? The body of Christ is to be built up, encouraged, and strengthened so that, that they can fulfill the Great Commission and teach other believers to do that. What about glorifying God? You should understand glorifying God means to make God attractive to others. That's what they're to be about. That helps to fulfill the Great Commission. But apostasy is going to destroy these ministries of the church, whether the ministries to people in the church or people outside of the church. In 2 Timothy 3.13, it says, But evil men and impostors will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Now understand what Paul is trying to say to us. It's bad, but it's going to get much worse. Some of us look around. We see what's going on in the church. We think, how can it get any worse? But believe me, Satan will bring an increase in apostasy, even though we can't imagine what it would be. Further, notice that the ones who are doing this, the evil men and impostors that are being used, are deceiving people in the church. But notice also that they're being deceived. Usually the deceiver is not the one being deceived. But in this case, they are along with the ones they're deceiving. In 2 Timothy 4, 3 and 4, it says this, For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, that is, the members of the church. But wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires. Turn away their ears from the truth and turn aside to myths. That is what's coming. That is the fruition of this apostasy. Now, there's something else that I want to share with you today about apostasy. And I want you to think this through. Do you remember it said, in the last days, this apostasy will come? Well, the last days of what? You need to think through the events of the end. There is a thousand-year millennial kingdom. Is it talking about that period of time? No, it's not. Not talking about the millennial kingdom. There will not be an apostasy. There will be a complete and total rebellion at the end of the millennium, but not an apostasy will happen. That rebellion will happen very quickly upon Satan being released. Well, will it happen to be show the end of the tribulation? No, it won't. You remember that the time of the tribulation will be extremely evil and wicked. But most importantly, that's the time of the Jews. The tribulation period, that seven years, is part of the Jewish dispensation. Where will the church be? The church will be in heaven. It won't be on earth. So there can't be an apostasy during the tribulation because it comes through the church and the church is not there. Which means that this apostasy comes at the end of the church age. Some people call it the dispensation of grace. But whatever you want to call it, it now causes me to rethink something that I have always thought. I've always thought there are plenty of signs that will speak to the coming of the tribulation period. That seven-year period that marks the end of Israel's dispensation. Signs such as the regathering of unbelieving Israel into the land. The ability of people 
living in Israel to rebuild the temple, their temple, real quickly, very quickly. The microchip technology that allows for the mark of the beast, which will occur at the midway point of the tribulation. The coming push for one world government. And of course, the movement to have a one world religion. Those are all signs that the tribulation is about to come about. And I've always taken the position that it's kind of like this. When you see the store owners in September and October breaking out the Christmas decorations and you start seeing the lights and all of the fun that is involved in preparing for Christmas, you know Christmas is coming soon when you see those events, those decorations. But you also know that Thanksgiving is coming even faster. It will be there sooner. Why? Because it precedes Christmas. And I always have taught, you'll know the rapture's coming because you can see the signs the tribulation is coming and you know the rapture comes before the tribulation. But now I've come to see there is a sign predicting the coming of the rapture. And that's the apostasy of the church. It is a sign of what is going to happen. You see, in 2 Timothy 3.1, it says, realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come and it will grow from bad to worse. Now, since the apostasy on which the New Testament writers speak is an inward disease of the church, it can't occur during the tribulation because we won't be there. Church will be gone. And as we look, this apostasy marks the end of the church age or this dispensation of grace. We have to remember and understand things will not get better for the church ever, but will get worse. There are those who teach that this earth, as a result of the work of the church, will get better and better, such that the Messiah will be able to return to earth because the church has made it such a wonderful place to be. That is, that the church will be the ones to issue in the millennial kingdom. That is not what these New Testament writers are describing to be at the end of the church age. If that is true, then there is a sign that the rapture is near, and that is the great apostasy. Then those who claim, but there are those who claim that people like me are mistaken. The reason they give is that if a great apostasy was coming at the end of the age, then Jesus would have spoken on such an event. Did the disciples always understand the teachings of their messianic leader? Consider the progression of the church age set out in the Gospel of Matthew. As John the Baptist, the last of the Old Testament prophets, would proclaim to the people in preparing the way for Jesus in Matthew 3, 2, it said, he would say, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What is the kingdom of heaven? Well, the kingdom of heaven is the millennial kingdom, the thousand-year reign of Jesus Christ here on the earth that was predicted in, throughout the scriptures. What was needed in order for that kingdom to be established? That the Jewish people would accept the, Jesus as their Messiah and king. But did they? No. In fact, they rejected it. But John the Baptist wasn't the only one who was proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. Jesus did too. In Matthew 4.23, it says, Jesus was going throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among the people. Why was he healing and performing a healing ministry? To authenticate his message. I'm the Messiah. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. If you accept me, the kingdom will be established. 
Let me give you another example found a little later in Matthew in chapter 10, verses 5 through 7. These 12, that is the disciples, Jesus sent out after instructing them, do not go in the way of the Gentiles and do not enter any city of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And as you go, preach saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus and his disciples continued to preach that gospel of the kingdom until the final rejection occurred. In Matthew, that final rejection is recorded in chapter 12, starting in verse 22. Then a demon-possessed man, who was blind and mute, was brought to Jesus, and he healed him, so that the mute man spoke and saw So the the mute man was able to speak and able to see. All the crowds were amazed and were saying, this man cannot be the son of David, can he? That is the Messiah, the promised one, the anointed one. But when the Pharisees heard this, they said, this man casts out demons only by Beelzebub, the ruler of demons. In other words, they're saying that Jesus was in league with Beelzebub and he was casting out demons because he, he was in league with them. Do you imagine how Jesus responded to that? But it was that statement that caused many of his followers to recognize now there's a transition. And while part of that transition was the way that Jesus would teach the people. No longer would he teach openly, but now he would speak exclusively in parables. Many times the parables were such that only after explanation could they really be understood the only ones to get that explanation were Jesus' closest followers. And I guess before we go on, we, we need to understand what a parable is. general definition of a parable is a simple story used to illustrate a moral or spiritual lesson as told by Jesus in the Gospels. Parables were a way to convey moral, transcendent principles, an allegoric story which the people could relate to and understand. One of the things that you need to remember is that Jesus, as he taught the people, they didn't have a pad or a piece of paper to write down notes or a laptop or a recording device. They had to simply remember it. And remembering a story uh, was a much easier way to teach the people. And why would Jesus use such a method? Because he could tell the story, and yet the parable could be used to relay information in a way that only the initiated could understand it. Now, is that really what Jesus did? Consider Mark 4, verse 10 through 13. As soon as he was alone, his followers, along with the twelve, began talking, asking Jesus about the parables. And he was saying to them, To you it has been given the mystery of the kingdom of God. But those who are outside get everything in parables, so that while seeing they may see and not perceive, and while hearing they may hear but not understand. Otherwise they might return and be forgiven. In other words, their decision has already been made and it's not going to be undone. And he said to them, Do you understand the parable? How will you understand all the parables? And Jesus explains the parable of the, of the sower to them. You can find the same thing in Luke 18, 34. The disciples understood none of these things, and the meaning of his statement was hidden from them, and they did not comprehend the things that were said. So what are the purpose of using these parables then? 
There were two main purposes Jesus had. The first purpose was to reveal the truth to his disciples, and the second purpose was to veil the truth to those Jesus knew would not believe. Now, let's look at the parables in Matthew 13. There's seven of them. And I want you to see something because I want you to understand what's going on here and how to meet the questions that are coming. First is the parable of the sower, verses 3 through 23. Here there were four soils, but only one type of soil became productive. And what this pictured was during the church age, there would be the message of the gospel would be preached throughout most all of the world, all of the world people groups, all of the world geographically speaking. And yet, only one of the four types of soil was productive. It's sharing the idea that a large number of the people who hear the gospel will reject it. Just like Jesus said, there's the wide gate, which leads to destruction, and the narrow gate that not very many people follow, which leads to heaven. And what happens as the gospel is disseminated during the church age? The second is that of the wheat and the tares. In this field that's described in this parable, there was wheat planted by the owner's employees. But after things start to grow, they come to him and say, Master, we're finding tares in the midst of our wheat. And the master said, the enemy must have come and planted them. And they said, do you want them to pull it out? And he said, no, you'll damage the wheat. Wait till harvest system comes. Then what you will do is you'll harvest the tares, bind them and burn them. And then you'll harvest the wheat and we'll store it in the barns as we normally would. This parable is teaching that many times, especially in the church, it's difficult to distinguish between true believers and unbelievers. And that will happen during the church age. The, the next, the third of these uh, parables, is the parable of the mustard seed. The mustard seed is very small seed. You would think that not much would grow from it, but it produces an extremely huge tree, one of the biggest trees that people in that area of the world ever knew. And it's what it's doing is describing the church. From the humble beginning, at the time of Pentecost, when there were about 120 believers, the church will experience great growth during the church age. It'll experience growth as far as numbers, uh, millions of people will come to know the Lord, and expansion geographically, as almost the entire world will be covered with the gospel. The next of these parables is the parable of the leaven. It's found in chapter 13, verse 33. And it speaks about a lump of dough or cash of flour to which leaven is introduced. And this leaven spreads gradually throughout the entire cash of flour. The next, we'll revisit this parable in a minute. The next parable is that one of the hidden treasure and what happens is there's a man who's in, surveying a field he's considering. And as he's surveying it, he finds that there is a buried treasure in the field. He digs it up, examines it, and says it's amazing. But then what he does is he reburies that treasure and hides it. Then he goes and sells what he has and comes and buys the field. Once 
He buys the field and it belongs to him with everything in it. He then retrieves the treasure, the hidden treasure. This pictures Israel. Israel had a chance to receive their Messiah. They rejected him. And Israel has been put on the shelf. But there will come a time where he will come and reclaim Israel, his treasure. And that's the parable of the hidden treasure. Then there's the parable of good price. It is similar to this one. Uh, there's a merchant who is looking for pearls and he finds one that is just superlative and is extremely valuable. So he sells everything he has and he goes and he buys this pearl and uh, is extremely happy with what he has done. And it pictures the situation where God loves the church and those who will be in it. And so he was willing to pay the great price of his son to die for the people who would come to know him. And it pictures the salvation of the world by the pearl of great price. The next one is the parable of the householder. And this parable has new and old in it. It's the joining of the new and the old and it pictures the coming together into the millennial kingdom of both Israel and the church. These parables, they speak of what will happen in the world from the time of the rejection of the Messiah to the coming of the kingdom of God. But we must see that there is one key parable for us. You see, many times critics of biblical interpretation will say, it may say that over here at the end of the New Testament, but Jesus never said anything about this, and Jesus knows everything. Let me give you an example. There's a lot of people who say, there's no really such thing as a rapture. You won't find that word rapture anywhere in the Bible. And if Jesus is coming back to rapture the church, he would certainly tell us. Well, they failed to read John 14, 1 through 3, where Jesus promises to come back for his church and to rapture them and take them back to heaven. Uh, in the same way, Jesus knew about this coming apostasy, and that's why he told the parable of the, of the leaven. And we need to see what can be done in regards to that, and we will look at that more next week because we're about to run out of time. But before we finish, I have a few things I want to mention to you that I want you to think through. Our Lord knows that an apostasy is coming and it will seriously injure his bride. Is there anything we can do to stop it? The answer is no, we can't. But we must follow God's plan to seek to delay and hold back this apostasy while unbelievers are coming to know him. And I want you to think this through. We know this apostasy is growing at an overwhelming rate. And although we can't stop it, we can slow it down. We must fight to slow down the apostasy, to stop the spread of the gangrene of the wicked one, and to prevent as many shipwrecks as we can. Secondly, we must remember that Jesus is the one who built the church and sin and death will not prevail against it. It may be 
seriously infiltrated, but it will not be overturned. Remember when he said in Matthew 16, 18, I also say to you that you are Peter and upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. So the last thing I want you to take with you as you've listened to me try to explain the characteristics of apostasy is this. Sin is always easiest to deal with at the very beginning of its growth, just like gangrene can best be treated if it's caught in the earliest of its stages, or just like the iceberg can be avoided if you turn the ship while there is still time. Let's close in a word of prayer. Dear Father, I thank you for the time that we could come together and understand and learn these principles together as a class. And I pray, Father, that those who listen to this subsequently will be enriched and encouraged and come to understand what your plan is. Yes, there will be an apostasy. And yes, there will be serious battles in the church that are lost. But all that is is a sign that very, very soon you will be coming back for us. Help us to rejoice in that blessed hope that you have given to us and to be looking for your coming. I pray these things in the name of your Son, Jesus, and the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.